May God speak to you through today's message from Senior Pastor Mike McGowan. Good morning and welcome to Parkway Fellowship. So glad that you're here today. And uh, guys, just a friendly reminder, there's only four more shopping days left, okay? So if you ain't got it by now, you better get with it, all right? Just, that's fair warning. Um, as most of you know, I used to be a youth pastor, and I loved being a youth pastor. It was so much fun. And one of the things I love the most about being a youth pastor is that when students, when they get on fire to follow Jesus, I mean, they let that fire just burn everything down, okay? And what I mean by that is that they let that fire to follow Christ just consume everything in their lives. Because if they believe that Jesus wants them to go do something, like, they're just going to go do it. Like, they do not care. If they feel like Jesus wants them to, you know, give up something, they'll give it up. They'll give up everything and they'll give away everything if they feel like that's what Jesus wants them to do. I mean, they just live with such unbridled passion. And I'm going to be honest with you. Unfortunately, I think as adults, a lot of us, we mature out of that passion to follow Christ. And I think that's unfortunate. And truthfully, I think think we would do well to become more immature in that regard in life. More, More on that later. Um, anyway, as a youth pastor, we would go to youth camp every summer, and um, these kids would come back from youth camp most of the time just so on fire and so excited to follow Christ. And most of the time when we come back, there'd be a pretty good number of them that would just get rid of the things that kept them from following Jesus. You know, I mean, there'd be kids, they would like, they would throw away um, cigarettes and alcohol and drugs and you know, music that they felt like was keeping them from following Christ because, you know, it kind of distracted them away from him. And uh, they would just do all that kind of stuff. Well, I remember one time, this uh, right for youth camp, about a, about a week after, this kid named Danny, super active in our youth group, came to me, um, met me in my office, and he's like, hey, I just need to talk to him. I'm like, yeah, sure, about what? He's like, well, Mike, here's the thing. Like, I gave my life to, to really sell out to following Christ at camp. And and I meant it. And I still do. He said, but here's my problem. If I've given my life to following Jesus with all my heart, then why is it that the temptation to go back to my other way of living is stronger now than ever before? Why is that? I said, well, Danny, here's what you need to understand. The devil knows about your commitment to follow Christ just as much as Christ does. And he is not going to take that newfound commitment easily or laying down. He is going to do whatever he can to topple you. And he's going to bring everything he can against you right now while you're like on this spiritual high because you're not expecting it. Because he knows that first off, if he can, you know, get you to, to, you know, to, to take a spiritual fall, you know, right after you get started, then the truth is you'll never, you'll never expect it. And so he's got you. And then secondly, you need to understand that if he can topple you while you are at your strongest, right after God's done something really great in your life, then you are most likely to believe a lie that says, you know, no matter what I do, 
things just don't change. My life's never really going to be any different for God. I said, and that's a lie. But he wants to try to get you to believe it if he can. And so, and all this is happening because you are not prepared for what happens after God does something great in your life. Because it's after that God does something great in life that we have to be just as prepared as before. Because look, sometimes we, we, have, we spend so much focus on you know, waiting on God and praying for God to do something great in our lives that once God finally does something great, like, we're just not prepared for like, what comes after that. You know? And so the temptation is you know, that we coast a little bit or that we're like, hey, God's done something great, and so we just we let our guard down. And it's in that moment that, truthfully, we're extremely vulnerable. We're extremely vulnerable to temptation or to an attack or to, uh, you know, from the, from the enemy, and, and we're, to, we're vulnerable to a spiritual fall. And, and I've seen it happen over and over and over again in teenagers as well as in adults. But what if I told you there was a way that we could take what God has started in our lives and we could use it to actually propel us farther than we've ever gone before. What if there is a way to take that momentum that has started because of, you know, God has done something great. We took that momentum. What if there was a way to take that momentum and use it to slingshot us forward in our faith and our relationship with God? I mean, that would be pretty awesome, right? Well, we can learn how to do that from Mary and Joseph after that very first Christmas so long ago. Because look, here's, the, here's these two young people. Joseph's about 19, Mary's about 14. So they're, they're young, they're teenagers. They're in that place in life where they're super passionate about following God. And they have been waiting and praying and waiting with great anticipation for this baby to be born. And then once after that baby was born, it would have been really easy for Mary and Joseph just to coast a little bit, just to, you know, catch their breath for just a second. I mean, because you can look, you got to remember, like, this is their first kid, okay? Those of you that have kids, remember how that first kid, like, just wrecked everything in your personal schedule, right? And so that's what they're experiencing. And so, you know, all the, and, and, and think about all the emotion of anticipation that went into waiting for their first baby. And like this first baby was like a really special child. So all of that expended emotional energy, it would have just been so easy for them to just go, oh, let's, let's just coast a little bit. But that's not what they did. After God did something great, after all that waiting, they didn't, they didn't coast at all. And so what did they do? And then what they did can set the example for us about what we should do after God does something great. So go ahead and pull your message notes, and let's ask this question, okay? Like Mary and Joseph, when God does something great, now what? Now what? Well, the first thing I need to do is I need to continue to obey God. I need to continue to obey God. Look what the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It says, when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed. And by the way, that was an eight-day period. So eight days after Jesus was born, 
Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what the law of the Lord, what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And by the way, the sacrifice of a dove or a pigeon, like that was a poor person's offering. So we know that Mary and Joseph were extremely poor because they couldn't afford to buy a lamb or some other animal to sacrifice. All they could afford was a dove or a pigeon. Now, Mary and Joseph, get this, they, they could have said, said, hey, look, we, we, we have a new baby. Things are tighter than ever before. By the way, we've just paid an enormous amount of money in taxes because that's why they had to go to Bethlehem from the first, for the first place anyway. It was to pay a tax. So we've had to pay this huge amount of money in taxes. And look, God knows our hearts. I mean, he's chosen us to raise this baby in our home because he knows that we're going to raise this child to honor him and to love him and to fear him. And so, look, this whole sacrifice of the temple, it's really just kind of a formality. I mean, and, and they're going to take the dove or the pigeon, like they're going to kill it anyway. And so what is the point of going through this formality, spend our, literally, our last bit of money on this, when really we could go home and our time and our money would be better spent doing that? I mean, so really, why should we go and do all this stuff? They could have said that, but they didn't. In fact, there is no indication anywhere in the entire Bible that those sorts of thoughts ever even entered their minds. Because look, they had a passion to follow God, and they obeyed God, even if it seemed like a formality, even if it made money tight. And so look, what I'm saying is, look, they had every excuse not to take the time, effort, and spend the money to go through this you know, like formal dedication of the baby at the temple. And honestly, had they chosen not to, like we would have all understood, because we've all been there. Because at some point, all of us have faced the dilemma of what is right versus what is practical, haven't we? Have we all faced that sort of tension before? But Mary and Joseph, they chose to continue to obey God, okay? So here's two central truths that you need to write down of why we continue to obey God, even after he's done something great, and especially if that obedience is not practical. Here's the first thing, okay? I obey God because of who he is. I obey because of who he is, all right? Now, let's just keep things in their proper perspective, shall we, okay? He's God, and I'm not, right? Okay, he's God, and I'm not. In fact, let's all say that out loud together, okay? Ready, go. He's God, and I'm not. And that is the biggest reason why you and I should obey him, because he's God, and I'm not. And it ha whether we obey or not has nothing to do with, should have nothing to do with convenience, it should have nothing to do with practicality. It should have nothing to do with whether it's affordable. The reason I obey God is because he's God and I'm not. And he's called you to be the kind of person to obey him when it's convenient or when it's practical or when it's not. He's called you to be the kind of person that obeys him no matter what. Look, I'll be honest with you. I'm all for being practical, okay? I mean, look, you can ask Amy. I am as practical as they come, okay? I'm all about being practical. But when did being practical become a factor in whether or not we should obey God? 
When is that something that should be considered? When did that ever happen? Well, it shouldn't be. Whether it's practical or not, whether it's affordable or not, or whether it's convenient or not, is of no consequence when it comes to obeying God. Because the primary reason that you and I are to obey God is because he's God and I'm not. That's what we need to consider. And that's why I need to obey him. Okay, now, there's a second reason why. I need to obey God because I obey him because of the example I am. I obey him because of the example I am. You know, something that often gets overlooked in, you know, the subject of obedience is the example that you set for other people. See, because when other people see you obeying God, it becomes inspiring to them. You know, someone's going to say, you know what? I feel like I can obey God because of what I see him doing. I feel like I can obey God because of what I see her sacrificing. And so it's an example for other people. I mean, look, here we are, look, 2,000 years later, and we're still looking at the example of two teenage kids, Mary and Joseph, and how they obey God. So they, they set an example for us, and your obedience sets an example that other people will see. Look, your obedience sets an example for your kids. Your obedience sets an example for your grandkids. Your obedience sets an example for other people in your small group. I mean, look, I cannot tell you how many times I've been sitting in a small group and someone will start to say, you know what, hey, we've really been struggling with obeying God and, you know, like this area. And somebody else in the small group will say, you know what, I used to struggle with that. And two years ago, I was in the same spot you're in. But here's what I did to just step out in faith and start obeying God. And here is how God worked it out. And they just launched this incredible story. That happens all the time. And that example serves as inspiration for someone else. So look, you can be that person for someone else. Your obedience can be an example that someone else uses in their life to inspire them to follow God. You could be the story that someone else uses in a small group to say, here's how you step out on faith. Because I'm telling you, your obedience sets an example. And you obey God because of who he is, because he's God and I'm not. And you obey God because of the example it sets. And when you do that, it prevents your spiritual life from coasting. And it keeps the guard up. And it keeps you moving forward so that God uses that obedience to slingshot you forward to a place of faith that maybe you've never experienced before. See how that works? It's awesome. Okay. Here's the second thing that I need to do right after God does something great. Right after I've been waiting on him to do something and he comes through, second thing I need to do is this. I need to keep trusting for the next step. I need to keep trusting for the next step. See, sometimes when God does something in our lives, we often view it as just an isolated event. You know, just, just as like this singular experience. But it almost never is. Usually when God does something great in our lives, it's just one event and a whole series of things that God wants to do. Now, it might be like really great and the other one's maybe not quite at the, on the same level, but yet it's just another event in the timeline in the next series of steps that God wants to do in our lives. And so we need to look at it as like this whole long line of steps. Let me show you what I'm talking about because 
in my research for this message, when I was reading about Mary and Joseph, I, I didn't under, fully understand something until I actually really started diving into it pretty deep. See, we have this traditional view of the manger scene, you know, that, so there's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and there's, you know, three wise men and some shepherds and some animals that all gathered around this wooden barn, and there's baby Jesus laying in a manger. Um, and that's kind of the traditional view of the manger scene. But there's, there's always been one thing that I've had a problem with when it comes to this Christmas story, is that one part of the Bible says that right after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph headed to Nazareth, up in the north, 90 miles north. And then there's another passage of the Bible that says right after uh, Jesus was born, they fled to Egypt because King Herod was wanting to kill baby Jesus. Okay, so which is true? Well, like, where did they really go? Did they go to Nazareth? Did they go to Egypt? Look, look what the Bible says. In Luke chapter 2, verse 39, it says this. It says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, remember, they did that in the temple. That's talking about the dedication in the temple. And that happened, remember, eight days after Jesus was born. Eight days, not near enough time to walk to Egypt and back. So Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So that's what they did immediately after Jesus was dedicated to the temple. Now look what it says in Matthew, chapter 2, verse 9. It says, after they, and that's the wise men. I'll put that in parentheses so that you would know who the they is. It's the, after the wise men had heard the king, talking about King Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Um, okay. So, like, which one is true? Did they go to Nazareth, or did they go to Egypt? I mean, does this mean that the Bible is wrong? Because, like, like, where did they really go? Okay, well, look, the, clearly, the Bible's not wrong, okay? Both of these things are true. Now, the key to understanding this passage is in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says this. It's like, probably the fourth, fifth line down, it says, on coming to the house. I want you to circle the word house. That's the key. Because look, Jesus wasn't born in a house. He was born in a stable, laid in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So there wasn't even a house next to the stable. There was an inn next to the stable. And furthermore, we also know, get this, that the wise men did not show up the night that Jesus was born. And the reason we know that is because, and now the shepherds were there, but the reason we know the wise men were there is because after the wise men, like, did not go back to King Herod, King Herod says, you know what, I've been tricked, so you know what, we're going to kill all the kids that are in Bethlehem that are two years old and under. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was two years old. What it really means is that Herod wanted to hedge his bets and make sure that he, make sure that he killed Jesus. So he just picked an age older than Jesus and said, okay, everybody two and under, we're going to kill them all. 
And so, so we know that that happened sometime after Jesus was born. And so if you look back at the dates, and I'm going to bore you with this part, but if you look back at the dates of Herod's reign, it seems that Jesus was somewhere but anywhere between three months and 12 months old when the wise men showed up. So it wasn't there the night it was born, it was sometime later. Okay, so listen, let me give you the timeline of the events that Mar- uh, for Mary and Joseph when it comes to the birth of Jesus, okay? And I, then I think it'll make it clear. So here's the timeline, write these down. Number one, they traveled, the first thing they did was they traveled to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. They go from Nazareth in the north, 90 miles south, to Bethlehem. Number two, shepherds visit the night of his birth. We know for sure that the shepherds were there. Bible's very clear about that. Number three, Jesus is dedicated to the temple in Jerusalem eight days later. And by the way, Jerusalem was literally next door to Bethlehem. It's only six miles away. I mean, they could have walked there in a couple of hours or less easily, okay? It's very, very close. Number four, Mary and Joseph and Jesus return to Nazareth. They go back home to Nazareth. Number five, they make a second trip to Bethlehem, likely to visit family two to six months later. And then number six, the wise men visit while they are in Bethlehem. Okay, see, check it out. Sometime during that first year, they returned to Bethlehem. Okay, remember, Joseph's got family in Bethlehem because that's where his family's from. So look, they make a second trip to go back, visit the in-laws, show off the baby. That's what we do, right? And that's what they did too. And it was sometime in that second visit because the Bible says they were at a house. They weren't at a stable, they were at a house. So was it, so Mary and jo- I mean Joseph's family obviously lived in a house, so they were at the house. The wise men all of a sudden one night while they're there for this visit, I mean they're gonna only be there maybe a week or so. Wise men show up, present all these great gifts, and by the way, that, ne- that very night Joseph has a dream and says, hey, Angel says, hey, you got to get up and you got to go now. You got to go now. And so that brings us to number seven. They flee to Egypt. They flee to Egypt. And then number eight, Herod orders all children to and under in Bethlehem to be killed. And then number nine, they move back to Nazareth six to ten months later when Herod the Great dies on March 13th in 4 B.C. Okay, so no, Jesus was not born in 0 B.C. He was born probably sometime in 5 B.C. When they were setting the calendar dates, the monks made a miscalculation and they got it wrong. Okay, so about 5 B.C., that's when it really happened. Now, this is, this is the most reasonable explanation for the chronology of the events of the birth of Jesus. Okay, now look, look, that doesn't mean that you need to go home, find all your manger sets, take the wise men and throw them all in the trash. Okay, <laughs> that's not what you need to do, Okay. The wise men, they're important. They're a big part of the Christmas story. They just weren't there the night he was born. But look, they got there as fast as they could, okay? So give them a break. Like, they can stay, okay? But here, here is what, here's what all this does mean. It does mean that Mary and Joseph kept trusting God for their next step in life. Look, there is no way that when they left Nazareth that second time to go to Bethlehem, there is no way that they could have even comprehended that they were going to have to flee to Egypt. 
They thought they were going to be gone for like a week or so. Had they known that they were going to be gone for like six or ten months, they would have brought a whole lot more baby gear with them, right? They thought, I mean, they thought they were going to be back sometime that next week. But they weren't. But they trusted God for their next steps in life. And that's what you and I need to do. See, you need to trust God for your next step in life. And get this, when I trust God, he always provides a way and a means. When I trust God, he always provides a way and a means. Think about Joseph. They provided, God provided a way for them to go to Egypt because God sent an angel to warn them in a dream and provided a passage for them to get to Egypt. And he also provided them a means. Because remember, that night that the wise men visited, what'd they give Jesus? They gave him gifts, valuable gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh. Two of those items they could have sold for more money if they chose to. And remember, Mary and Joseph, remember, they were extremely poor. And so when they brought gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, this is probably more money than Mary and Joseph had seen in their entire lives. And so when God tells them that night, hey, flee to Egypt, and you have no idea how long you're going to be there, they said, okay, God, we trust you for the next steps. And by the way, thank you for providing the means for that to happen. And they trusted him. And that's what you and I need to do. And look, and it doesn't mean that those next steps in life are always going to be easy. I'm sure it was not easy for Mary and Joseph to head to a foreign country with a brand new baby. It doesn't mean that it's going to be predictable. It clearly was not predictable for them. And the next steps are clearly not predictable for you or for me. But look, God says, trust me for your next steps in life. Whatever they are. Just trust me for those next steps. Just like Mary and Joseph did. And look, just, just like teenagers, when they, come, when they come home from camp, and man, they are on fire for God. I mean, they are so excited about Jesus that they're willing to give up or give, give up anything and give away everything if that's what they feel like Jesus is telling them to do. Okay? That's what you and I need to be like. We need to, be, we need to do what it takes to recapture some of that passion that says, okay, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what, and I'm going to obey you no matter what you tell me to do because, look, you're God and I'm not. And I want you to use my example to inspire whoever you can in this life. But God, I'm telling you, I trust you for my next steps, whatever that is. I'm telling you, I trust you now. That's what he wants us to be like. And so after God does something great, instead of letting our guard down and making ourselves susceptible, that's when we need to kind of even to ramp it up and let God use that to slingshot us forward by saying, God, I'm going to become totally obedient to you no matter what, and I'm going to trust you no matter what. And when we do that, not only do we limit our susceptibility to a fall, but we put ourselves in a position where God can use that momentum that he's already started to propel us forward farther in our faith than we've ever been. See how that works? Now, the first step for anybody is you've got to make sure that you've taken that first step of faith to ask Jesus Christ 
to come into your life. So you can't follow God until you have God as a part of your life. So look, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life to forgive you for everything you've ever done, and then pledge your life to following him, that's what it means to be a Christ follower. See, when Jesus died on a cross, he died so that his death could pay the price for your sins, and if you would accept his sacrifice, his, his forgiveness, then you would be forgiven for everything, and you could have a relationship with God on earth, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Look, good people don't go to heaven. Being good has nothing to do with going to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. So if you've never asked Jesus for forgiveness, you have to start there. And then, because he's willing to forgive you for everything you've done and will do, then it makes sense that you would say, okay, well, I'm going to live for you as best I can from this day forward. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. If you've never done that, there's a sample prayer that's at the bottom of your message notes. Take a moment. I want you to pray that prayer right now. And for everybody that's listening that has already prayed that prayer at some point in your life, then solidify your commitment now to say, God, I want you to renew my passion for you. And I choose to obey you no matter what, and I'm going to trust you for my next steps no matter where. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you for Mary and Joseph and for, for their passion to follow you that here, we're, here we sit 2,000 years later still inspired by these two teenagers and their incredible commitment to follow you come what may. God, I ask that you would help all of us recapture that, be even more like that, and saying no matter what you say or do, God, I trust you and I'll follow you. And ask you would help us to do that with all passion and zeal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more information about Parkway Fellowship, find us online at parkwayfellowship.com or facebook.com slash parkwayfellowship. You can also download our mobile app for access to the most recent messages, video content, and much more. It is available both in the Apple App Store and Android's Google Play.